Hello, and welcome back to Puzzled Monkey. Now, before I dive into today's topic, I just want to say thank you so much to everyone who listened to the first episode of the podcast. Your comments were so kind and supportive, and they came from people around the world with different views, different ideas about what the podcast should be. I appreciate all the comments, and thank you so much. So what am I talking about today? Well, in the previous episode, we talked about how water is a slippery political substance. And today, following that theme, I want to talk about how another facet of nature has been and continues to be co-opted by politicians to serve their own goals. Today, I'm talking about trees and how we might reforest this increasingly naked world. Now, it might sound a bit perverse, but I would say that deforestation is a classic of the climate change genre. And it's something we've been doing for a hell of a long time in lots of different places around the world. I mean, the way in which media sometimes portrays it makes it seem like it's only something that is happening today. It's a modern issue, whereas in reality, ever since the agricultural revolution about 12,000 years ago, we've been getting pretty gifted at chopping down trees and destroying habitats. And with that in mind, I want to look at two different reforestation campaigns in the last century. One in the UK, which is stereotypically straightforward and maybe a little bit too late to the party, and a bit more of a dynamic and, dare I say, mad approach in the Punjab in India that involves guns, saplings, and selfies. Jesus, the Holy Trinity, all in one place. But before we get stuck into all of that, I just want to invite you, just for a second or two, to interrogate what images come to your mind when you hear the word deforestation. Perhaps you picture the plight of indigenous people in the Amazon who are being booted off their ancestral land by a nexus of politicians and big business. Maybe it's images of Indonesia, images of orangutans, literally fighting with the men that have been sent to evict them from their trees. Either way, perhaps we don't immediately think of the UK when we talk of deforestation, which is ironic because we are amongst the most deforested nations in Europe. Currently, we have only a third of the average tree cover compared to other European countries. Most of the deforestation in modern UK history occurred during the World Wars, where timber was crucial to the struggle both at home and abroad. Wood was used extensively in transportation, in lodging, in the construction of vessels, but also within pit props to keep the coal pits working over time. But the government quickly began to realise that overseas importation of timber was no longer going to be feasible during wartime because imports to the country often came under threat and potential destruction by German submarine attacks. So the government at the time recognised that really strong and stable leadership, I'm joking, vigorous action was required to maximise the home production, the domestic production of timber. So in 1915, the Homegrown Timber Committee, what a fancy name, was established to control the supply of timber across the nation. And this had disastrous consequences for woodlands in the UK because it led to the proliferation of sawmills. And by the end of 1917, there were 182 government-run sawmills, 
which saw 182,000 hectares of woodland being felled within a one-year period. That's equivalent to an area larger than modern-day Greater London. Anyway, unsurprisingly, by 1919, woodland cover was at an all-time national low of 5%. It was at this moment, slightly delayed if you ask me, that the Forestry Act was passed. And this basically created the Forestry Commission, which is a governmental body that would create and maintain woods and forests that were owned by the state. And now, about 13% of the UK is forested, which compared to some of the European countries, is a bit of a rookie number. Now, creating a Forestry Commission is a pretty obvious and, dare I say, boring way of getting tree coverage back up. In the Punjab region of India, they've taken a much more creative route to reforestation. Now, before I dive into this amazing reforestation program, I want to talk a little bit about the history of the region. Now, the northern state of Punjab was engulfed in a very violent insurgency throughout the 80s and 90s, and it centred on the Punjab itself desiring greater autonomy from India, and basically the formation of a federal region that would act as the homeland of the Sikhs, who predominate in the region. In 1984, the leader of this movement was assassinated under an Indian military action called Operation Blue Star. I don't know why these operations always have such innocuous names. Operation Condor. Oper- I don't know why they have an American accent, because this is India. Anyway, this assassination led to an understandable level of outrage amongst the Sikh community and actually ended up leading to greater support for the separatist movement. And what was ushered in after this was a cycle of tit-for-tat violence between Sikhs and other communities in India. Perhaps the most famous event of this cycle of violence was the murder of the then Prime Minister of India, Indira Gandhi, who was killed by her two Sikh bodyguards. The murder of such a high-ranking official, the most high-ranking official within Indian politics, was seen as revenge for the attack upon the separatist movement in Punjab. And this really was the boiling point for relations between the Sikh communities, not just in the Punjab, but in other cities in India. Because what you had then was the formation of violent mobs who targeted Sikhs across the country, who saw them as the perpetrators of violence towards the Lady of India. Statistics are a little mixed on how many people died during these anti-Sikh pogroms, but independent sources put it somewhere between 8,000 to 17,000 deaths. This is a huge toll, a huge loss of life. And these cycles of violence consumed the Punjab until the early 90s, until the separatist movement lost a bit of steam. And a hangover from the 80s and 90s was an increased level of gun ownership in the Punjab, which was probably already well established considering its location on the highly militarised border between India and Pakistan. So currently, Punjabis represent 2.3% of India's population. But interestingly, the state has nearly 20% of the total private licensed weapons in the nation. There are almost 360,000 active gun licenses across the massive state. And then, in steps, the 2019 Arms Amendment Act. 
It was brought in because of the proliferation of small arms across the entire country through the extensive black market that exists. And this act reduced the number of licensed weapons allowed for a single person from three to two. Which, you know, you've got to have more than one gun per hand. What's the point in having one if you can't hold two at the same time? <laughs> I shouldn't joke. Safe to say this caused an outcry in the Punjab and other regions which saw this clamping down on gun ownership as an attack on civil liberties. Now I hear you saying, this is all delightful information, but Gusto, mate, what has this got to do with woods? The episode is, after all, called Weaponized Wood. Well, let me explain. Last year, a district in the Punjab passed another law. This time, it was for residents who wanted to secure a firearm license. Now, in a much more creative and, dare I say, dynamic approach to reforesting the country, they argued that to get a shooter, you have to plant 10 trees first. So after you've planted your little wee sapling, you're required by the district officials to send a selfie of yourself with the tree, as well as follow-up pictures a month later to prove that you're actually caring for their well-being and are acting as outstanding stewards of nature. Now, on the surface, despite being a little bit infantilizing, perhaps, to the local people, this is a pretty effective way to increase forest cover. Because if there is a cultural desire for a specific object, in this case weaponry, I don't know what it would be in the UK, perhaps bar tokens, although, of course, you won't be able to use those until 2027 when we get back to pubs. It is a way of coercing softly people to start engaging in, I guess, environmentally friendly behaviours. But it does beg quite a few serious questions. First and foremost, is this the only form of vetting that you have to go through to get a gun in this district? I'm sure it's not. I'm sure there is a much more, you know, extensive list of criteria you have to fulfil. But, you know, psychopaths can also have green thumbs. You know, just because you're interested in nature doesn't mean that you're not going to do some pretty dodgy things with a weapon. Now, I think here, and I don't have a great deal of evidence for this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think this policy, this sapling policy, if you will, was a way to appease people whilst also making the local government look benevolent and green at the same time. And yet again, we go back to one of my favourite tropes, greenwashing. Trees here are being mobilised as a highly political tool to serve highly political ends. And this isn't something that only happens in India. I want to bring this back to Blighty. Because this political mobilisation of trees was a huge feature in the last general election. You had different political parties trying to outcompete each other with how many trees they were going to pledge to plant. The Conservative Party said it was going to plant 30 million trees per year by 2025 if, crucially, if it won the general election. And as we know, it joyfully did. And Big Boris said that there was nothing more conservative than protecting our environment, which kind of builds on Theresa May's statement that restoration of the nation's forests was going to be part of delivering a green Brexit. I mean... And then the Lib Dems came out and pledged to plant twice as many trees than the Conservatives in the same period. It was like a bloody bidding war. And then even Nigel Farage got involved. 
He argued that the UK should spearhead a global initiative with the UN to plant billions of trees around the world. And this interestingly points to a trend that's becoming increasingly common, which is where political parties on the far right of the spectrum are getting involved in tree planting initiatives. And this is kind of a way for them to reclaim the climate debate from the clutches of the terrifying left. Again, this speaks to how, like water, trees are not inert objects. They are very important entities that are endowed with power that can be mobilised or conscripted to fulfil some bizarre political imaginaries, regardless of where you are on the spectrum. And I there mean the political spectrum. Now, whilst on the surface, it may seem a good thing that politicians are talking about the issues of deforestation and reforestation, And I agree that it's important that this comes onto their remit of interest and they feel a sense of duty towards it. I do sometimes question their authenticity. I think first and foremost, if the government really cares for trees, it needs to address the ecological impact that plans such as HS2. And for those who are listening outside of the UK, HS2 is a very controversial rail scheme that's being planned in the UK currently are going to have on our forests. Because HS2 alone threatens to destroy some 100 ancient woodlands, which offer far more environmental, social and cultural services than the monoculture plantations that the government is planning on administering. These plantations make up about 45% of the new forests being planted worldwide. They mainly consist of fast-growing species that are often non-native. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that instead of creating services such as carbon sequestration and biodiversity benefits, they can have the inverse effect. So there's likely to be a huge degree of hubris amongst the different political parties pushing for this reforestation via plantation approach. Because the restoration of natural forests forests that have taken generations, and I don't just mean generations of humans, but potentially even generations of entire cultures, to develop at the pace in which nature dictates. They are the ones which sequester the most carbon. They are the ones that provide the best niches for other species to develop and thrive. But it's not those ones that we're pushing The government's approach here kind of reminds me of the mass hysteria that's caused when a new iPhone comes out or the PS5. We're so focused on the new shiny product, in this case, a new plantation forest, that we bin the old model at the earliest convenience and completely forget about it, even though its functionality maybe was higher than the new sexy edition. And this is exactly what could happen. If plantation forests are pushed far greater and more fervently than the protection of pre-existing forests, we are going to shoot ourselves in the proverbial foot and it's going to bloody hurt. And like many things, this is not the first time that discussions around how we should forest our basically naked country have come to the fore. Oliver Rackham, in 1986, likened the modern wooded landscape of the UK to a library, in which thousands of ancient books that hold within them great value and insight are destroyed every year by people who cannot 
or choose not to read them. For him, the shelves, our forests, are simply restocked with bad paperback novels and pamphlets containing meaningless jumbles of letters. Some tasty prose there from Oliver. But looking to the future, we may not even have to talk about trees and reforestation as a pathway towards tackling climate change, because there's a new kid on the block. Here, I'm referring to carbon capture and storage technology, which is a bit of a hot topic in the sustainability world at the moment. In a nutshell, what this technology allows us to do is to capture waste CO2 at sources like a cement kiln or a biomass power plant by using processes such as gas separation and absorption amongst others. Then you can transport it physically to a storage site before depositing it in a place where it will not enter the atmosphere. And this is usually in an underground geological formation. What this basically means is that you can inject carbon that you don't want to escape into the atmosphere and therefore impact the greenhouse effect. You can inject it into a fucking rock. Now, many people would be rather understandably concerned about this technology. And this is based around the very simple idea of can we really store CO2 underground? And actually, there's a big movement to also store it underwater. Can we really ensure that it's not going to have negative impacts? Is it not going to lead to acidification of oceans? Is it not going to basically leak out from underground? The predictable issue here is that we just don't really know. There are still under 20 CCS plants that are operating in the world. So we don't really have a large enough evidence base to project whether this could be a technological solution to the issues that we face with regards to climate breakdown. And many people would argue that we already have the solution without injecting bloody gases into rocks. We have to look after our forests. We have to protect peatlands. We have to protect things that already exist before we get excited about the shiny iPad, the iPhone, the PS5, the CCS technology. And this is, of course, true. We really do need to value these sources of carbon sequestration more, much more than we're currently doing. And whilst countries are investing a great deal of money in the protection of these things, every single year, forget year, every single month, we're battered with news stories about how deforestation is increasing, peatlands are being dried out, how this spells the end of humanity and civilization as a whole. So there is an issue here, and this is why people are arguing that, okay, the current approach is not good enough. We have to start utilizing these technologies. But there is a distinct danger of placing all of our eggs in one basket, especially when the basket is technology. Christ, I hear all the time people saying that technology is going to save us as if technology is God. It's going to come out and provide the panacea to all our ills. We forget that we created technology. It's neither good or evil. It is what we make it. So some would suggest that maybe we can have both. We can look after our pre-existing forests. We can protect peat bogs that store more carbon than forests, whilst also considering how technologies such as carbon capture and storage could help alongside these things. It's not a one-size-fits-all. There's nothing one-size-fits-all about the earth or humans for that matter. And after all, none of these things in isolation will quote-unquote save the world. 
as the American comic George Carlin once put it, the world's going to be absolutely fine. It's us that are fucked. (laughs) And that sounds like a really depressing point, but actually within it, I think there is a real call to action because it basically means, to me at least, that trees, technology, and not even God, perhaps, (laughs) can save us. The solutions are very much human. And after all, if we stopped producing so much carbon, maybe we wouldn't need to capture it and inject it into a rock. Some serious claims from me there. Claims I don't think I can back up. But there we go. We've reached the end of another episode of the podcast. Thank you for going on that bizarre journey with me. I started off with the Forestry Commission and then ended up here. Bizarre. Maybe stranger things have happened. So what's on the cards for next week's episode? Well, I thought I'd take a little hiatus from the environment and actually talk about education. And with this episode, I'm going to go a little bit Balkan. You'll find out what that means next week. Speaking of Eastern Europe, just for a second, I want to say a particular thank you to listeners in Moldova. Because Moldova is the country after the UK that has streamed the first episode the most. I love that. The Moldovan connection is alive and well with this podcast. But of course, love not only to the Moldovans, love to all. I really look forward to delivering something for you next week. Look after yourselves, look after each other. And yeah, ta-ra. Mm-hmm.